Was Jesus' mother really a virgin? Some feel that this is not an important doctrine of the church. Some believe that, in fact, Mary got pregnant because of a lack of virtue and holiness. This is the line that many enemies of the church use. Those who would mock Christianity always attack the Virgin Mary as a liar. Matthew 1.23 quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, which came to us 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Mary's fiancé Joseph is in agreement with her virginity because he reports of the angelic visitation of Gabriel who tells him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Well, here we are, second week in our Christmas series. I know some of you feel that we're starting Christmas maybe a little too early this year, and some are groaning inside saying it's too soon, unless your name is Brenda Barrett. But <laughs> we, uh, we love to celebrate the greatest event in the history of humanity, the birth, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, um, some people do groan that it's too soon. They, they don't want to hear about Christmas. And I think there's a good reason for that. And that's because the average person on the street maybe doesn't fully understand or appreciate the significance of Christmas. Now, why is that? Because I can tell you that uh, for, uh, for almost the whole time that, the, that the North America has been settled by people from, from Europe, we have celebrated Christmas and understood the importance and the significance of it. But it has, it has lost its significance for many, and I believe that the reason is that Christianity was, had come to be too onerous for people. It was too demanding and far too restricting. We don't, we don't want God telling us what, what to do. We don't, want, we don't want the Bible to be our authority for life and for decisions. We want to do what we want to do. The thing is, is that the Christmas celebration is exciting. It's fun. We celebrate love and joy and peace, and it's a peace on earth and goodwill to all men. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a nice celebration. And so we, we found... A, we're in a place now, it's a very interesting place, we're in a place now where Christmas is becoming more and more important and more and more exciting to people, and Christianity is becoming less and less important. In fact, many are turning away from the faith. So we, we do remember the good feelings we had as children. If you're my age or a little younger, maybe older, then you know that, that Christmas is a time to celebrate joy and peace on earth and, and general happiness. Well, this celebration of Christmas has inspired, if you can believe this, 146 new Christmas movies this Christmas. In the year 2021, 146 new Christmas movies. 
And uh, yeah, that's, that's Hallmark. Do you know of the 146 new Christmas movies, 41 of them are Hallmark movies. And that's the truth. That's this year. And I'm told that 16 of these have already aired, and there's still another 25 movies to go. Uh, and you know, the interesting thing is that it's not just this year that there's 146 new movies. It, it's, it's, this has been the trend for some time now. Uh, back in 2019, there, I think there was over 100 movies produced. So they just keep on producing this because it just makes everybody so happy, so joyful. Well, I was checking online uh, for some books just to help with, the, with preparation for this series on Christmas. And I was checking Amazon, looking for, I actually put into the search engine, the Christmas story. And this is what popped up. Uh, Frequently bought together, the Christmas story, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Frosty the Snowman. And everybody knows that these just naturally go together, right? (laughs) It's absolutely absurd. It's absolutely crazy. Well, here's the thing, folks. Many people consider the Christmas story, as we read in the scripture, as just one of the mythologies that, that, that populate the, the, the Christmas season. Frosty the snowman, that's one of the mythologies, and Santa and the Rudolph and the, and the reindeer and, and, the, and the elves and so on and so forth, and, and Santa Claus. Um, but here's the thing. We know that these things really have nothing to do with the true story of Christmas. So we're looking at the people involved in the Christmas story, in the Christmas narrative that we we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last week, we talked about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who was promised from from the ancient times, uh, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. And we saw how Jesus Christ is, in fact, the, the Messiah, and he has come to set up his kingdom in the hearts of mankind, of human beings. He set up what we call a spiritual kingdom. And I wonder today if Jesus Christ has set up his kingdom in your heart. And I'm going to tell you that if you haven't yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you have to do is you just have to come to him in repentance and say, God, I recognize that I need Jesus the Messiah to be my Lord. And so if you haven't done that yet, I invite you to do that. And if you'd like further instruction on that, then please come and speak to me. And I'd be very happy to show you the scripture and give you the instruction that you need to to, uh, open your heart to Jesus the Messiah. So today what we're doing is we're talking about the Messiah's earthly mother, and her name is Mary. Some of you know that her name is Mary. In fact, we often call her the Virgin Mary. And the question this morning is this, why did Mary have to be a virgin? Is it important? And I want to just tell you right off the hop that this is not one of the the negotiables of the Christian faith. There are some minor issues that that we may disagree with and they're not it's it's not a matter of life and death. But when it comes to the virgin birth, we would call this a dogma of the church. It's not negotiable. We recognize that Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin and I want to share with you why that is this morning. But before we do that, Let's read about this in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And this is the birth of Jesus that's being foretold. So let me read it to you. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, that is, engaged to, a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. That, my friends, is the proof that he is the Messiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This, my friends, is an eternal kingdom. We call this the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is the king of this kingdom. And then in verse 34, it says that Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And who is Elizabeth carrying? She's carrying none other than John the Baptist. And remember that in, in the last chapter of Malachi, Malachi says that the next person, the next prophet who's coming will be Elijah. And Jesus himself tells us that John the Baptist is in fact the Elijah that Malachi is talking about. And then the angel goes on to say, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, we're going to talk about the Virgin Mary. What we need to do is we need to go back 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We need to look at the prophecy about Mary given through the prophet Isaiah. And here we have Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting Isaiah 7, 14. And it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Matthew points out that this virgin birth of a child named Emmanuel is evidence of a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Now, in case you don't know what the Messiah means, Messiah, uh, another word for Messiah is Christ, which means anointed, the anointed one. All of Israel, remember I said this last week, all of Israel was, was waiting, waiting desperately for the Messiah to come and deliver them. And so this was a momentous occasion Finally, after waiting for 400 years to hear from God, suddenly we hear of the birth of the Messiah. Now, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, what you need to know is that God is speaking to King Ahaz 
through the prophet Isaiah. King Ahaz is under, uh, under attack from his enemies, Rezin and Pekah, and God speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah and says, Isaiah, or says, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What we have here is what we call a, du- a dual fulfillment of a prophecy. So in the days of King Ahaz, God did in fact give King Ahaz a son. His name was uh, um, Hezekiah. He gave him the son Hezekiah, born to the young woman, Abijah. And we see here that this is actually a now and a future event. It was, it was in the time of Ahaz, but it also looked forward to a future event. Now, this is something that's actually quite common in biblical prophecy. We see a fulfillment in the now, but then we also see a fulfillment in the distance. For instance, we see, of the, 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 see the prophecy of the siege of Jerusalem, which happened in 587 BC, uh, but then we see it happens again in, in 70 AD, and of course, you know, that was the end of the temple in Jerusalem, and we recognize that that is the end of temple worship. Why do we see an end to temple worship? Because Jesus Christ has come, and Jesus Christ has made it possible for an end to the sacrifice of animals. Why? Because as Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is a sacrifice once for all people. We don't need to have a sacrificial system anymore because Jesus is a fulfillment of that. So we see then Isaiah 7, 14 has got a dual fulfillment. King Ahaz had his son Hezekiah. That was a sign that God would help him. And in fact, God did help King Ahaz by sending Tiglath-Pileser III, who came and conquered Ahaz's enemies. Now, when we look at this verse, the, verb, the, the word for virgin is the word alma in Hebrew. The word alma simply means young woman. And so some would, would argue that, that this, in fact, is not a fulfillment of the prophecy that Matthew talks about. But because Matthew, who is an apostle, one, one who is ordained of, by Jesus Christ himself, we, we recognize that this is something that is of God. But here's what you need to see. Back in the third century before Jesus was born, the Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt, they wanted to produce a scripture in the language that the people would understand. And at that time in Alexandria, it was a, it was a Greek city in Egypt, and the people needed to have the scriptures in their language. And so the scholars, the Jewish scholars and teachers of the law, they came together, they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into, into the, what we call the Septuagint. Now, interestingly... In all the places where we have the word Alma, they, they translate it young woman. But when it comes to Isaiah 7.14, for some reason, they translate it as virgin. The virgin will be with child. In fact, there's two times when they do that. Instead of using the word uh, neanis, which means young woman or, or woman of childbearing age, they use the word parthenos, which specifically means virgin. 
He uses it in, in Genesis 24 to refer to Rebekah, and then here in Isaiah 7.14. Now, we scratch our heads and we wonder why. Why did they do that? Well, we know why. Just a few months ago, we talked about, or a few weeks ago, we talked about, uh, about the Scripture being inspired of God. And we recognize it even in the translation of this, of this passage, which Matthew would have been reading. Matthew would have been using the Greek uh, translation of the Scripture. They use that word virgin. And this... This is one of the many signs, one of the many evidences that Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. Now, let me just go on and share a bit more with you before we answer the question, why did she have to be a virgin? We know that she was a virgin because, it's, first of all, it's Mary's testimony. The angel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus which means what? Yah saves. Yah, by the way, in case you don't know, is the name for God. How many have heard the expression hallelujah? Let me say it again. Hallelujah. Can we all do this together? Just instead of just two people at the front? Hallelujah. Very good. We recognize that Yah is God, and that's what Jesus means. Yah saves. And then the the angel goes on to say this, he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the, the, the fulfillment of God's great plan to establish his son, Jesus Christ, as the king of kings, the king of Israel, the king of the whole world. When Rome hammered that sign on the top of Jesus' cross, it said, the king of the Jews, it was in many senses a, a prophecy, a prophetic statement. They didn't even know that God was using them in that way. But we're making a statement. Jesus Christ is, in fact, the king of the Jews, but not just of the Jews. Jesus is the king of all who put their faith in him, which we're going to discuss more in just a few moments. So here's what Mary says in response to Gabriel. Watch this. In Luke 1, 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be? How can I give birth to a baby? Because I am a virgin. In the Greek, where it says I am a virgin, it actually says I do not know a man. Now, this was a, this was a Semitic expression which meant I have not had sexual relations. I, did not, I do not know a man. I have not had sexual relations with a man. How on earth could I give birth to a baby? Well, we know that we know what happened. We know that none other than the Holy Spirit himself came upon Mary and, and conceived Jesus Christ in her womb. Now, the Bible is careful to include in this description of what happens Joseph's response. Now, if you were, if you were engaged to a young woman, gentlemen, and, and all of a sudden she came to you and said, I'm pregnant, your initial response would not be, oh, it must be from God. You would say, what have you been doing behind my back? Now, Joseph was no different than any other man. 
But this is where the story gets really interesting. Because what happens now is that Joseph is giving his stamp of approval on what's going on in Mary's life. And it says in Matthew 1, 20 to 21, that the angel visited Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Again, why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Interesting. The angel didn't just visit Mary, the angel visited Joseph. Joseph's stamp of approval on what was going on here is, again, one of the proofs that shows us that this is legitimate. And then we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. Now, can I just stop for a moment and remind everybody that when Jesus came to this earth, he was with Israel for a short time. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that after the resurrection, he ascended to the Father, and what happened? The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And so now watch this. Every one of us who is a follower of Jesus Christ, every one of us today who is a real Christian, a true Christian, not a nominal Christian, not a Christian in name only, but somebody who is truly born again, you have the Holy Spirit with you. If, if you will, the Holy Spirit is Jesus' Christmas present to us. Jesus Christ has given us the Holy Spirit so that every one of us can declare God is with me. Would you say that with me? God is with me. It's possible because God gave us the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said, it's a good thing that I go away. I mean, we would all love to see Jesus stay on this earth, but Jesus says, no, it's better if I go away because if I go away, then the Holy Spirit will come and be with all of you all the time, wherever you are, at any time. The Spirit of God is with you. That's the gift that comes from Emmanuel. And then we read in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, Mary, but knew her not. Again, there's that, there's that euphemistic way of saying that he didn't have sexual relations with her uh, until she had given birth to a son. And Joseph obeyed the angel and called Jesus, Jesus. God with us. Jesus saves. Now, why, again, did Mary have to be a virgin? Now, some people feel that this is not an important doctrine of the church. Some people believe that, that uh, you know, this is not something we should be dogmatic about. Some believe that Mary got pregnant because of a lack of virtue or a lack of holiness and tried to deceive Joseph and tried to deceive her parents and tried to deceive everybody. And in essence, what they're doing is they're calling Mary a liar. Well, folks, this is exactly how the enemies of Christianity, how the enemies of the church try 
to, to undermine the veracity, the truth of Christianity. They tried to undermine Christianity by calling into question things like Mary. But I want you to see something that's so important. We know that this is a virgin birth because of the proofs of prophecy, because of the proof of Mary's own experience uh, speaking to the angel, and then Joseph giving his stamp of approval by saying, yes, it's true, and I too had a visitation from an angel, and I am for sure going to marry Mary because it's all true. Wikipedia and many liberal sources want to demythologize the Scripture. What do we mean by that? What they're trying to do is they're trying to remove from Scripture this this supernatural aspect to the Christian message. They want to do everything they can to try to explain away the miracles of Scripture, the miracle of the virgin birth, the miracles that Jesus created. They want to show how it, well, that's not really what happened. It's, it's also become known as higher criticism. And so this is what, this is what people have always done. They've, they've mocked Christianity, and they've tried to, tried to show or demonstrate or prove that it's not true. But Matthew 1.23 quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 14, saying that this is the proof that Jesus has, in fact, been born of a virgin. And by the way, it's not just any virgin. In Luke, Matthew chapter 1, we see the genealogy of Joseph, and then we get to Luke chapter 3. It begins with Joseph, but it's, as, you, as you begin to read, you quickly recognize that the genealogies are different. Well, because Mary is marrying Joseph, it has to begin with Joseph legally, but scholars have come to the place where they believe that what's going on here is that Luke is actually giving Mary's genealogy, showing what her pedigree is. We said last week that, that Joseph had to be in the line of David because Jesus' earthly father had to be of the line of David for him to legally inherit the throne of David. Remember we talked about that last week? Because what are, we, what are we told? We're told that David's throne will never end. That's what God told David in 2 Samuel. Your, your kingdom, your throne, there'll always be someone on your throne forever and ever. And so Jesus then, because his father, his earthly father is Joseph, is legally entitled to the throne of of David, which is yet another proof of his Messiahship. But then we look at Mary, and she too, we discover, is of the line of David. Now, I want to just quickly point out to you uh, a few of the people who are in the genealogy. I know some of you, when you're reading through the genealogies, you think, oh, this is so boring. Do I have to do this? Why is this included? This is, there's nothing in here. Well, folks, once you know your Bible, once you begin to understand who everybody is in the Scripture, and you start to recognize names in the genealogies, then you begin to recognize how significant the genealogy is. And what we recognize about Mary is that she is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is that important? Well, last week we said that God spoke to Abraham and told Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. This is, again, a prophecy of the coming Messiah who would save the world. This is a prophecy that that Mary's offspring would, in fact, fulfill that prophecy. And then we read on that she was 
specifically, she was of the tribe of Judah. Now, why is that important? Verse 33, you can see that. Well, because in Genesis 49, verses 8 to 10, Jacob is is prophesying over all of his sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says these words, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. What is a scepter? That's a sign of, of kingly authority. And if, you, if you've ever seen the coronation of the queen or uh, some of the old TV footage of the coronation of the king before her, you'll see that they hold a scepter in their hand. That's a, that's a sign of their authority to rule over their kingdom. Well, this is what Jacob is saying. Judah will, will, will have the scepter forever and ever. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus then is born in the line of Judah, because his mother is of the line, the line of Judah, L-I-N-E, the line of Judah. Now, do you remember what it says in Revelation 5 about Jesus? It says that Jesus is the lion, L-I-O-N, the lion of Judah. Jesus is the one that will hold his scepter and rule for all time, for all eternity. He is the Messiah, born of Mary. Now, it gets even better and even more exciting. In verse 32, we discover that that in Mary's lineage is, is Jesse. The Messiah, in case you don't know this, is to be born from the root of Jesse. In Isaiah 11.10, the prophecy is that in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Well, every Jewish uh, scholar understands that the root of Jesse speaks figuratively about the coming of the Messiah. Now, you're starting to see here that, that this, is, this is not just mythology. This is not just flight of fancy. This is not just somebody's random ideas that they've sort of scrambled it and put it together and come up with this. There is all kinds of proof and supporting documentation, if you will, legal documentation to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and has to be born of the Virgin and has to be born through Joseph and Mary, descendants of David. But there's one more thing I want you to see in that genealogy. In verse 38, it says that Mary is born of the lineage of Adam. Now, that should be a no-brainer because we would all say, well, of course, we're all born of Adam. And if you understand that we're all born of Adam, then you understand the significance of tying Mary to Adam. What is Luke trying to say? Well, he's speaking to Gentile believers. He's speaking to people who are not Jewish. Matthew's gospel is for the Jewish people. Luke's gospel is for the Gentiles. What Luke wants to press home with his listeners is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah for all people, not just for the Jewish people. It's a fulfillment of what God says to Abraham. Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. It's powerful stuff, powerful documentation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God who came to save the whole world, all people. Now, Why did Jesus have to be born a virgin? 
It's critical that we understand this. Mary had to be born a virgin. Why? Because the, the, in the virgin birth, we find we have a, a bypassing of a human father, and in so doing, we bypass the transmission of the sin nature in humans. Did you get that? If, if Jesus was born of a man and a woman here on this earth, what would happen then is that Jesus then would inherit what we call the sin nature. Sometimes theologians call it original sin, the sin that was handed down to us through Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it didn't just affect them, it, it affected their, all their offspring. So in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve sinning against God and being kicked out of the Garden Eden, of Eden. And then by chapter 4, we find Cain killing his brother Abel. The sin has entered in, and it has infected all human beings. The reason that Jesus has got to be born of a virgin is to bypass the sin nature. So Jesus is born, if you will, very much like the first Adam, without sin. The first Adam was born without sin, but he made a decision to sin against God. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is born without sin, and he too is tempted. Remember the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, in the luscious Garden of Eden. And God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the day that you will die. That was the death penalty. And of course, you know what they did. They chose not to trust God, not to believe God. They chose not to put their faith in God. They chose instead to put their trust, their faith in themselves, and that's when death entered in. That's when we see original sin being firmly established in the hearts of all humans. In fact, the, the Apostle Paul reminds us through a number of different scripture verses that he's quoting, he comes up with this, Romans 3, 9b to 12. All people, whether Jew or Gentile, remember a Gentile is somebody who's not Jewish, all people are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. You get the picture. This is who humans are. And so we need a Messiah, my friends, who is not a human being only. What we have in Jesus Christ, and we talked about this last week, we have somebody who is 100% human and 100% God. Remember St. Nicholas. We all see jolly old St. Nicholas, but the St. Nicholas I showed you last week is a St. Nicholas who attacked the Bishop Arius for suggesting that Jesus was not equal to God. That's the kind of St. Nicholas I like. Just let him have it. Jesus is 100% God, but 100% man. Now, watch this, folks. If we're going to have somebody who's going to take away our sin, he has to be utterly sinless. And so when God, when, when, when God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, there's a reason for this. Watch this, folks. Adam and Eve took one bite of, an, of, of the fruit 
and sin came upon us. And then we find Jesus in the desert, not eating or drinking anything for 40 days, and then he's tempted. Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation, but Jesus in the wilderness did not give in to temptation. At that moment, Satan knew he was in very big trouble. He knew that someone greater than anyone he'd ever known had come to humanity. And we see an attack on Jesus throughout his ministry and then culminating in his death on the cross. Now, the virgin birth is a reminder to all of us that we need a savior. It's a reminder to us that not not one human being has got the capability of being righteous or enabling others to be righteous. Watch this. Gabriel tells Joseph and Mary that they're to have a son and they're to call him Jesus, which means God saves. What does this mean? Well, it means that Jesus has come to this earth to release us from the bondage of sin. And Jesus has come to this earth to save us from the consequences of sin. Now, I want you to just remember what happened in the Old Testament just just before Israel was delivered from Egypt. You remember the story. The children of Israel are in bondage to Pharaoh. The, the price that Pharaoh was, was asking of these Israelites was too terrible for any human to bear. So bad that they cried out to God, please, oh God, deliver us from this bondage. My friends, this is a shadow or a metaphor, if you will, for the bondage of sin. This is what sin does to us. It's unbearable what it does in us. And if you're here this morning and you've experienced any kind of pain and suffering in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so they're crying out to God, God, send us a deliverer. And God sends a Moses. Moses, who is, who is really, again, a shadow or a type of Christ. One who has come to deliver his people from bondage. And, and Moses tells the people of Israel, what you need to do is you need to take a lamb. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. You need to take a lamb, and on the night of Passover, you need to take the lamb, a lamb that's spotless. Why has it got to be spotless? Because Jesus was spotless, without blemish, without sin, a perfect lamb. Take that perfect lamb, and then you need to slaughter that lamb the way that Jesus was slaughtered at the cross. And then you need to take the blood, and you need to put it on the doorposts. And you need to put it on the lintel. Are you seeing the cross in that? And all the Israelites who put the blood on the doorposts and put it on the lintel, it goes, it's the top part of the doorframe, are those that were delivered from the death angel when the death angel came over Egypt. And all who put the blood of the lamb on that door frame, we're saved. No wonder Jesus calls himself the door. If anyone comes through this doorway, you will be saved. 
That's who Jesus is. Born of a virgin. Now, I want you to see something here, folks, because for many of us evangelicals, we're very used to telling people, oh, yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And it stops there. Folks, that is an incomplete gospel message. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for your sins. What did he do? He went to the grave, and what happened? He rose again. Now, I want you to see this. Because Jesus was sinless, because Jesus was without sin, the grave couldn't hold him down. The death penalty was for those who were sinful. And so they tried to kill Jesus, but Jesus rose again because the grave couldn't keep him down. Why? Because he was perfect, because he was sinless. Folks, this is our Messiah. Our Messiah is born of a virgin. Our Messiah was born perfect, and he resisted temptation. He remained perfect, and he was the only one who could take away our sin. Born sinless because he was born of a virgin. And folks, I want you to recognize something. Because Jesus arose from the dead, because Jesus was resurrected, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ will also be resurrected from the dead. The grave will not keep you down. Jesus, Yah saves. The only proper response to that is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the blessed, blessed story of the coming of a perfect Messiah, a Messiah who had to be born of a virgin, a Messiah who was without sin, so that when he was crucified and put to death, he came back to life again because the grave couldn't keep him down because he was blameless and sinless. Father, thank you today that all who put their faith in Christ will also be resurrected from the dead someday, and we will live forever in the presence of our Savior, in the presence of Almighty God. And we thank you today for what Jesus Christ did for us. And we pray that for Christ's sake. And everyone said it with me. We're going to receive communion right now. I'd like you to take a moment just to examine your heart. And, uh, and we're going to play just a brief video clip. And then we're going to take our communion together. So just prepare your hearts. If there's any unforgiveness in your heart, if there's any hatred, bitterness, would you just deal with it right now? Ask God to forgive you. And ask God to cleanse your heart of this unrighteousness. And the good news is that Jesus will do that because he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Folks, this communion is for everybody who's put their faith in Christ. And by the way, it's not for perfect people. It's for sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.
Father, as we bow our heads before you now, we thank you. We thank you for giving us a Messiah. And we remember, Lord Jesus, that you told us to remember your death, to remember you. Father, would you take a moment right now just to reflect on the condition of our own hearts. Lord, there's not one of us here today that would, would say or proclaim, I am sinless, I am without sin. Every one of us knows we're sinners. And it's for this reason that we celebrate this communion, to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us in dying and rising from the dead. God, you told us not to forget this, to keep this front and center in our lives, to to always remember what Jesus has done for us. Father, we, we pray that you'd forgive us for forgetting. And so, Lord, as we are about to partake of this communion, would you, would you just cleanse our hearts of all unrighteousness and fill our hearts with joy right now, realizing what you did for us at Calvary. Recognizing that this communion is the very, very thing that reminds us that we're part of the family of God, that Jesus is my Messiah, our Messiah, is our Savior. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread after giving thanks and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Let's take it together, shall we? Can we stand together right now? In the same manner, after he broke the bread, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Let's take it together, shall we? Father, we thank you again for a Messiah who has delivered us from bondage. For a Messiah who has delivered us from the consequences of sin, God, we know that we deserve to die for our sin, but your great love sent us a Savior, Jesus, Yah saves. We pray right now, God, fill our hearts with wonder, with joy, and with gladness that we have eternal life and that because Jesus was sinless, and arose from the dead. So we who have put our faith in the sinless Jesus, we too shall be resurrected from the dead and we shall spend eternity with Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness and kindness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, Merry Christmas.